right, have a great class, guys. Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. You can find it on page 920 in the Bibles provided there in the pews. If you happen to be here and you don't have a Bible, we'd like to give you one, and so the white and blue Bibles are there free for you to take. We'd love for you to have one. I wonder, do you ever feel like you are caught in the middle of a story that is bigger than yourself, and that you're just kind of stuck in this thing, you don't really know what to do about it? You know that the world is bigger than you, but you struggle to know and to consider how you fit into it all what life is actually supposed to be about. I mean, you know, it's not about me, but here I am, and so what do I do with me? Well, for some, the answer is to to live a quiet and, and peaceful life, to seek provision and to give honor where honor is sufficiently required in order for me to live well. That's what we see the people of Tyre and Sidon doing in this text. For others, like Herod, This life is spent building kingdoms, seeking glory for ourselves, trying to gain the praise of others, making much of ourselves, striving to be known, to be remembered, or to be revered by others. And still for others, we realize that that this story is not really about us at all, but about the God who made us, that our lives are momentary, but His is eternal We are finite, but he is infinite. And so God is at the center of this story, not me or not us. But you know, we still have to go one step further because even the Jews who approved of the martyrdom of James believed that. There are many religious people that hold to some deity-centered worldview that falls short short of the true center that God has revealed to us in Jesus Christ. No, for those who are in Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus is the very climax, the very center, the very heart, the very origin, and the very goal of all of life. He is at the center. This is his story. Our lives and our history is his story. And so we say, like the Apostle Paul did in Romans chapter 4, that if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. But that's easier said than done, isn't it? It's much harder to live for God's glory when He delays, or when He moves or works or acts in ways that we do not expect, when He allows for evil to go on, especially evil against, that's committed against His own people or even maybe by His own people. How do we truly seek His kingdom first rather than subtly seeking to carve out our own little kingdoms, however quiet, however peaceful, however humble they might be? How do we stay focused on His story when at times it seems like my story isn't really much a part of His story at all? In fact, I don't even know at times whether my story is even included in His How do we go on when, when those who are opposed to his kingdom seem to be winning? 
I mean, I can see their kingdoms, but I'm not really seeing much of his at all. How do we remain focused on seeking the glory of Christ regardless of what befalls us when lives are on the line? How do we do that rather than competing for glory by playing it safe, by ignoring him, or by putting ourselves first? Let's not be flippant about this. This is real. This is a huge deal. This passage is dealing with the reality that one man is martyred and another is about to be. We live in a world where persecution is a reality for countless brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world today, just as it was back then, just as Christ promised that it always would be from then until he returns again. And so we need to wake up to this. This is not a game. Living for his glory might cost us that too. And so, what does that look like? Well, Acts chapter 12 is going to help us. What we're going to learn from this text is that despite overwhelming opposition, God's glory is revealed as the church prays, and proclaims. Despite overwhelming opposition, God's glory is revealed as the church prays and proclaims. And so may God's glory be revealed to us as we now turn our attention to Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says that about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the doors were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he had knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. 
But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose, others, whose other name was Mark. Despite overwhelming opposition, God's glory is revealed as the church prays and proclaims. In order to best serve our time together, I just want to break that statement down into three parts. And so first, despite overwhelming opposition... I mean, let's face it, life can be hard enough as it is with just the various difficulties that we face every day in life, whether that be at home or at work. You know, we go about our schedules and, and, and challenges can overwhelm us. Not to mention the fact that we face all of these temptations, these temptations to doubt God and his goodness and his provision for us, temptations to sin against him in various ways, let alone facing this kind of opposition. I mean, here we have a king, a pseudo-king, Herod Agrippa I, he's the grandson of Herod the Great, the one who killed all of those young boys during Jesus' early days. He had took over power after, as this pseudo-king under Roman rule after his uncles, Herod Philip, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, I know there's a lot of them. Herod Antipas was the one who had been a part of Jesus' trial and approved of his death. And like his grandfather and seemingly the rest of his kin, this third generation Herod found himself in a position of authority in which it was personally advantageous for him to oppose Christ. And this opposition is staggering. I mean, look at what it says. Verse 1 tells us that he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, committing acts of violence against people that aren't doing him any harm. Verse 2, he, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is the second martyr for the Christian faith who's mentioned. One of the inner circle, one of the three closest companions of Jesus, and now he's gone. Verse 3 says that when, it, he's, when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So he's go, now going after the big dog and just in, intending to put him to trial and then to execution. In verse 4, we see how overwhelming this opposition was and that Peter was put in prison with four squads of soldiers to guard him until after the Passover festival. This is something you're not walking away from. 
right? Verse 6 tells us that Peter was bound not with one chain, but with two chains to two soldiers with sentries at the door guarding his cell. And more than likely, he was kept in the fortress of Antonia, which was filled with guards and secured with heavy iron gates, just as we read about in verse 10. And so here we have this king with all the power and all the resources to devote a fortress and four squads of soldiers to keeping you in chains, having you bound to sleep between two soldiers. You can't even sleep by yourself. Herod has already acted violently towards your beloved church, only compounding the persecution that this church has faced for over a decade now. He's adding to it. He's intensifying what was already there. And he has just killed your friend and partner in ministry, James, one of the apostles, one of Jesus' inner three along with you and John. And now here you are, and you are waiting for the same fate. You know that this is coming to you as well. This is surely going to be your death. You know, as hard as life can be, with all of the pain and loss, just try to put yourself for a moment in the shoes of this early church. Try try to imagine what it would be like to be Peter right here in this story. Or if maybe that's too, too distant, too far removed from you, think about our brothers and sisters throughout the world who right now are facing persecution. Our brothers and sisters in places like North Korea or Iraq or Eritrea. The watchdog persecution group Open Doors estimates that at this moment, there are over 100 million Christians around the globe who are suffering persecution for their faith in Jesus. It's a reality. 100 million. Imagine the heartache and the grief. Imagine the confusion and despair. And it's not as though, aside from this persecution, everything else in their life was just great. It was just peachy. You know, they don't have to worry about anything else in life. There's no sickness. There's no death. There's no challenges or hardships at home or at work. All of that is just is great aside from this whole persecution thing. And so that somehow made the persecution that they were doing easier to bear. No, it's compounded. Everything that you and I experience on a daily basis plus This is overwhelming opposition. And it's not only back then, it's right now. This is the kind of opposition that breaks you. This is the kind of opposition that tries to get you to turn away from Jesus. By the grace of God, it did not break them. By the grace of God, it will not break our brothers and sisters throughout the world By the grace of God, it will not break us. We don't face this kind of opposition. The opposition that we face looks much more like that that the Jews or the people of Tyre or Sidon or even King Herod himself faced. Ours is an opposition that comes from living in a fallen world. 
Like the Jews, we might have to deal with opposing views, people that don't agree with us, that don't look at the world in the same way that we do. They have different beliefs. Maybe they're false beliefs. Maybe they're dangerous false beliefs, but still, it's not the same thing. They didn't like it because the Christians didn't believe what they believed. And yes, this might affect their way of life. It might affect the way they do business. It might affect the way they vote. It might affect the way they raise their family. It's different than what we do. They're not at risk of their lives in the same way that the person that the church was being persecuted. Or maybe like the people of Tyre and Sidon down in verses 20 through 22, we have to deal with opposing desires within our hearts. The desire for a peaceful, plentiful existence that leads us into idolatry, placing our own security and well-being before God. We are indifferent towards God's glory if only we can have a comfortable life and we're willing to do what is necessary in order for us to achieve it. I mean, isn't that what we see them doing when they tried to assuage Herod's anger by appealing to Blastus, asking for peace because they knew that their country depended on the king's country for food? Isn't that why they flattered him? And when he spoke, they said, listen to that. It's the voice of a God and not of a man. Because I'm dependent upon that guy. I can't trust God. i got to look to this guy. And so I'm going I'm to give him honor. I'm going to give him praise. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to give him glory that belongs to God alone. Or perhaps like Herod, the great worldly opposition that we face is for an opposing glory. We want to be great. We want to be somebody. We want to be powerful. We want to please people. We want to gain attention for ourselves. We want to build our own little kingdoms and receive the praise of men. And if Christ is not going to get down here and reveal his surpassing glory to us, well then in the meantime, let's go ahead and seek a little glory for ourselves. No, these worldly oppositions... It may not be as immediately overwhelming as prison chains or the thrust of swords, but friends, let me assure you, they are no less dangerous. Though they are more subtle, they are no less severe. Perhaps what makes opposing worldviews, opposing desires, and opposing glory even more overwhelming is that fact that they don't seem as immediately threatening as the potential for persecution. But so often we fear those who can kill the body far more than the opposition that can kill the soul. But whether it be the indifference of the people of Tyre and Sidon who were concerned only for worldly needs or the glory-seeking of Herod who abused his power in order to exalt himself, or the self-justifying beliefs of the Jews that led them to give approval to this persecution, whether it be overwhelming physical opposition or overwhelming but yet subtle worldly opposition, we need to be clear that all of it stands against the glory of God. That's what's at stake. Persecution stands against the glory of God. False teaching, false beliefs, false worldviews stand against the glory of God. Idolatrous desires, even for the most basic needs, if it leads us to indifference towards others or to a distrust of God, they stand against the glory of God. 
Pride and self-exaltation stands against the glory of God. And don't think for a moment that we can somehow navigate an an immediate road, right? And in between, that we can live with one foot in this world and one foot in the other. That we can somehow just reduce the overwhelming oppression and opposition that we face by giving glory to God and by believing the lies and false doctrine in an attempt to save ourselves, Don't think that we can somehow give glory to God and be indifferent towards the plight of his people or distrust him for our provision or give glory to other things that temporarily make us feel safe. Don't think that we can give glory to God and at the same time try to gain glory for ourselves. Now Peter, James, and the church understood this And that's why they were willing to endure such overwhelming opposition. Because they realized this fact, that there are two kingdoms. That there is the kingdom of this world, and there is the kingdom of God. And you can only live for one or the other. And this world is going to do all that it can to stand in overwhelming opposition to the glory of Christ. The world hates the message that there is one perfect creator God to whom all glory belongs, that he and he alone deserves all praise, all honor, all adoration. The world hates the message that our desires have been corrupted by our sin, that by our pride and by our self-exaltation, by our longings to love what God hates and to hate what God loves. The world hates the message that we, by nature, look to ourselves, that we distrust God, we trust in ourselves, or in any other thing as a substitute in order to gain for ourselves, that we can live our lives apart from him. The world hates the message that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves, that the good life that we were created to live cannot be lived apart from him. That apart from the perfect sacrifice of Christ for our sin and his resurrection from the dead that reconciles us to God forever to live for God's glory rather than our own, that apart from that we are hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world. The world hates the message that God's glory is made visible in the church when she lives for him rather than for the world. And the world hates the message that all who seek to live for their own glory will be eternally condemned by the one to whom all glory is due. Because that's the case, the world will do all that it can to oppose this message, whether by sword or by seduction, to get us to strive to give glory to another, and that opposition can be overwhelming. That apart from God's sustaining grace in our lives, it is and it will be overwhelming. You cannot stand against it. But friends, if God's grace could sustain Stephen in the midst of stones, or James 
through the sword, or Peter in prison, or the church through the overwhelming opposition that would tempt her through worldly seduction and scatter her to the wind through persecution. And God's grace is sufficient to sustain you through whatever overwhelms you. If God's glory is worthy, sufficient for James' death, Peter's imprisonment, then God's glory is worthy and sufficient for our lives as well. And so trust in our good and gracious God in the midst of whatever you find opposing him in your life. By his grace, it will not overwhelm you. And so despite this overwhelming opposition, we can be sure, second, that God's glory will be revealed. Friends, just because life is hard or things don't go the way that we expect them to, it doesn't mean that God is not at work right now in revealing his glory. The church is persecuted. His faithful servants die or are imprisoned. But if there is one thing that we learn from God's telling of history is that he has not abandoned his people and that he has been, he is, and he will be at work now and for always to reveal his glory, whether that be through the deliverance of his people or his judgment towards the wicked. And because God is God, he does that in the most unexpected ways and often in ways that you cannot attribute to anyone else. God's glorious deliverance was completely unexpected to everyone in this story. Herod didn't expect it, right? Verse four tells us that he put Peter in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending to, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. He comes back in verse 18, and he's looking because that's what he expects. You don't walk away from a fortress filled with four squads of soldiers, But this glorious deliverance was also unexpected to Peter. I mean, when the angel of the Lord appeared to him in his cell, flooding the room with light, what was Peter doing? He was sleeping between two soldiers. In verse 7, the angel has to whack him in the side, literally smite him in the side just to wake him up. Now, maybe, perhaps, Perhaps this is an illustration of Peter's great confidence and assurance in God and that he was just sleeping so soundly in the midst of it all. But I'm not so sure. I mean, he has already been delivered from prison once back in chapter 5. Angel of the Lord delivered him there, but he's not looking for it this time. It's not like he's just kind of waiting, just like you guys are going to see. Just wait, you're going to see. I'm going to take a nap because you're going to see. And the next time he won't be so lucky. No, even here, when the chains fall off his hands, he's still like one of my kids when they fall asleep. Angel's got to tell him everything to do, right? You know, it's like, okay, Peter, it's time to get up. Peter, come on, time to get up. Come on, come on, come on. Bam! Okay, okay, I'm up, right? Okay, put on your clothes, right? Put on your shoes, other foot, 
Not that one. Right? Put on, put on your cloak. Come, come with me. Come on, this way, this way. No, this way, not that way, this way. Come on. Leads them all the way out. Finally gets out there. Right? And Peter thinks he's dreaming. Says that he thinks he's seeing a vision. And this is already after the fact that he's been delivered from prison once back in chapter 5. And, and he doesn't even come to himself until after the angel leaves him out in the streets. So how are we to take this? How do we understand Peter's great faith here? Perhaps Peter has the spiritual gift of sleepwalking. No, it's because Peter wasn't expecting this. It certainly was not what the Jews were expecting because in verse 11, once Peter finally comes to, he says, okay, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So they were expecting this too. And even the church, I mean, yes, the church was earnestly praying, but when Peter shows up at Mary, the mother of John Mark's house, nobody's expecting him. Verse 17 And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. They were not expecting it. It was easier for them to believe that Rhoda was crazy or that Peter sent a visiting angel that sounded just like him to them than it was for them to believe that God had just delivered him from the fortress of Antonia. kind of makes me wonder what they would have been praying for, right? I mean, were they praying for comfort for James' family? Maybe a merciful death for Peter? Maybe they were praying for protection for themselves or perhaps continued boldness to proclaim Christ despite this persecution just as they had back in chapter 4. Regardless, if they were praying for Peter's deliverance from prison, this story indicates that they didn't believe that God would answer Or at least that he wouldn't as immediately as what he did because Rhoda is crazy and there's an angel at the door. And they are all amazed to see him. And nor was this miraculous deliverance the result of Peter's great faith. We've always got to deal with this when we talk about miracles, like who who does the work, right? God has just rescued him from the hand of Herod out of a dark cell in the middle of a fortress, so more than likely it's the middle of the night, surrounded by four squads of soldiers, iron bars, brick walls, and chains of two soldiers, and yet Peter can't even get past Mary's gate. If Peter's faith was so great that he can walk out of the fortress of Antonia, you better believe he ought to be able to open Mary's door. But when they finally let him in, verse 17 and 18, he quiets them down, tells those who are present to report what had just happened to the elders, and then he sneaks off to another place because he knows that Herod is surely going to come looking for him, and he does. That's not the result of necessarily great faith. I mean, that's wisdom, but it's not necessarily great faith. If he just walked out of four squads of soldiers, man, you know, 
If I think it's me, then, man, I'm bulletproof, right? I'm just going to come out there, go knock on Herod's door next. That's what I'm going to do. Now, the whole point of this miraculous account is to declare that this unexpected deliverance could have only been accomplished by the glory of God. Just like Moses in the Red Sea, or Gideon in the Midianites, or Hezekiah against the armies of Sennacherib, or Daniel and his three friends at the, in the lion's den and fiery furnace, or Jesus and our salvation from sin. This is something that only God can do because only God can deliver from such peril. And because only God can deliver in such a way, then all glory belongs to God. Peter didn't say to report to James and the brothers how much God loves him and that he should deliver him from the hand of Herod. He says, no, report to them of what the Lord has done. You see, it's about him. Yes, we receive love, grace, mercy, and a glorious inheritance that is beyond anything that we can imagine, but God's glory is at the center of our salvation. There's a real danger in the VeggieTales version of the gospel. Yes, you are special, and yes, God loves you very much, but it's not about you. It's about him. Christ is at the center, not you. So let us proclaim God's special covenantal love in every miraculous act of deliverance towards his people, but let's do so in a way that does not give any glory to another. God's glory is revealed in our deliverance. But God's glory is also not only revealed in our deliverance, but in the judgment of the wicked. You see, at the heart of this story is a competition for glory. It's a competition between Herod and God. God, by his nature, is glorious in and of himself. He is glory, and therefore he can give his glory to no other. It alone belongs to him. Herod desperately wants glory, a glory that belongs to God. Herod kills and imprisons, kills James and imprisons Peter because he wants to gain the approval of the Jews. In verses 18 and 19, he orders the sentries to be put to death, and then he hightails it off to Caesarea because of how Peter's deliverance tarnished his glory. His anger towards the people of Tyre and Sidon was over his glory. And in verse 21, we see Herod seeking to glorify himself when on that appointed day, he puts on all his royal robes and he just kind of saunders his way up to his throne and he gives this great oration to them. But God will not give his glory to another. And in verse 22, we see him receiving glory that was due to God when when they said, the voice of a God and not of a man. But because God does not share his glory, verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And God's epitaph on his life reads, he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That's God's final word on Herod. And yet, verse 24, but the word of God 
increased and multiplied. See, the truth is, no matter how glorious your life on earth may be, if you fail to give God the glory, this will be your epitaph as well. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. For all your pomp and pride and disregard of him, God will strike you down. Every time you receive glory that is due him, you deserve his judgment. Every time you think that you are beyond his authority, that you are beyond his reach, that you are beyond his grasp, that you are beyond his comprehension or understanding or beyond his sight, you deserve his curse. Now, you may not be a king persecuting Christians, but in many ways, every day, we fail to give God the glory that he is due. That is ultimately what is behind that very familiar verse in Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It means that they have not given God the glory that he's due. And every day we go through life competing for glory that is due to Christ alone. So God's glory is revealed both in the deliverance of his people and in the judgment of the wicked and no one will go untouched. Not you, not me, not anyone. Only those who have received the gracious free gift of new life in Christ will be able to glorify God. Not perfectly, but truly. And where we are deficient in glorifying God, we strive by the grace of God to be transformed into the glory of Christ from one degree of glory to another by the power of the Holy Spirit that works within us. And despite our insufficiency, we can still stand because we have been covered in the glory of Christ. All glory belongs to him. And so that is why God calls us who are his to live for his glory and not our own. Now, before we move on, we need to talk about James. How is it that Peter was delivered by and for God's glory and James was not? How do we know that Herod's death was God's glory being revealed in judgment and James' death was not? I mean, Perhaps James was still seeking glory for himself just as he had done during Jesus' earthly ministry. And he's still doing that today and maybe that's why he died or, or, or maybe that's why Luke gives so little attention to him because it's just like a byword. Oh yeah, you know, like Herod just killed James with a sword and then I'm gonna spend all this time talking about Peter and his miraculous deliverance. Forget about James. The tension of God's glory and human suffering, especially Suffering among God's people has been a paradox that man has wrestled with ever since the fall. You get a hint of it in Genesis 3 and 4 with Adam and Eve and Cain wrestling with this. 
How can God be good, loving, merciful, powerful, and sovereign, and yet there be evil and suffering in the world? Especially this kind of suffering, this gratuitous suffering against his people. Why? It's not fair that James died. And people develop all sorts of philosophical explanations, everything from dualism to a free will theodicy. We don't have time to dig into all of that now, but the problem is not the problem of a good God and the existence of evil. The problem is how does God uphold his justice and impart his mercy because he is glorious towards those who all deserve his judgment? Now, you may not consider Peter or James to be as wicked as Herod, but the truth is that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of them. All deserve his judgment. And and Peter probably more so than James because Peter outwardly denied Jesus three times. James didn't do that. And so why did he walk and James die? Well, the answer lies within the good and sovereign purposes of God. We learn from passages like Matthew 16 or John 21 that Christ has a very different purpose for Peter than he does for James. Both, though, will glorify him. Both apostles would willingly die for the glory of Christ, but just at different times. You see, what we don't need is a theodicy. What we need is a theology of suffering and a theology of the glory of Christ. If you don't see Jesus is glorious. You're not going to sacrifice at all for him. Don't suffer. If you don't see who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you're never going to want to suffer a bit. You're not going to understand why God would allow for the suffering of his people. If you're trying to measure glory by earthly standards rather than eternal heavenly standards, then James' death is pointless. In fact, it's gratuitous. If the glory in this life is all that you're living for, then you're going to look upon this suffering and say that it's not fair. If you have a low view of your sin and a low view of Christ's person and his work and a high view of your own sense of worthiness, it will be hard for you to make sense of how James could suffer this way and how that could possibly reveal God's glory. But when you're truly able to behold the glory of Christ. When you're able to, as we so often sing, survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, truly able to behold this love so amazing and so divine that our hearts do begin to sing that it demands my life, my soul, my all. The truth is, James had already been delivered from judgment through the sacrifice of Christ. And his death in bearing witness to the glory and the worthiness of Jesus only served to then exalt Christ and allow him to truly enter into glory. It is not death to die. To die is gain. Because that is far better. And through his death, God's glory was revealed. 
Friends, make no mistake. God's glory will be revealed in the deliverance of his people and his judgment upon the wicked and even in the death of his saints. But friends, this is not just for guys like Peter or James. This is true for all of us. As I quoted before earlier from Romans 14, if we live, we are the Lord's, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And so then, how do we stay focused on Christ's kingdom? How do we live for his glory? How do we sustain our joy in him? How do we prepare ourselves to bear witness to Christ, if necessary, even unto death? Well, despite overwhelming opposition, the glory of Christ is revealed third as the church prays and proclaims. Now, our prayer and our proclamation is not the cause of God's glory being revealed despite overwhelming opposition, okay? It's not that God was lacking glory. If we pray to him and if we proclaim him, then God is somehow receives glory that he did not otherwise have. No, our prayer and proclamation are the products of God's glory being at work within us and is the means by which God includes us in the revelation of his glory, both in our hearts and in the world around us. And friends, this is how we keep our pride in check so that we don't compete for God's glory. This is how we keep from drifting off towards opposing desires that would lead us away from God and into idolatry. This is how we keep our our self-righteous, self-justifying hearts from perverting the grace of God into something that we do to save ourselves. This is how we bear witness to the glory of Christ with our lives. In the middle of this glorious account of deliverance and judgment, in the midst of overwhelming opposition, there are two very important contrasting statements. They're oddly placed. They're meant to stick out to us like a sore thumb, and we can identify them by the conjunction word, but. One is found in verse 5, and the other in verse 24. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And immediately following God's judgment upon Herod for his pride, it says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. These are the products of God's revealing his glory to us, and these are the means by which God gives us to glorify him rather than competing for our own. Friends, the church, the early church, was a praying church. We have highlighted this consistently throughout the book of Acts. Prior to this passage, prayer has already been mentioned 18 times and is present in all but two chapters. This is a big deal. Prayer is not optional for the Christian life. It is essential. They devoted themselves to prayer They prayed for wisdom. They prayed for boldness to proclaim the gospel. They prayed prayers of repentance. 
They offered prayers of adoration and thanksgiving to God. They interceded for one another. They prayed scripture. They prayed during the regular hours of prayer, morning, noon, evening, and night. Here in verse 12, many of them were gathered in the middle of the night to pray. But there are two other aspects of their prayer that are highlighted in verse 5 that we cannot miss. They prayed earnest prayers and they prayed corporate prayers. They prayed earnestly. We don't use that word much. It means eagerly, fervently, constantly. There was a sense of urgency of necessity, of desperation, a yearning for life and vigor to their prayers. They knew that God was the source of their strength and joy, their sustenance and growth, and so they sought him earnestly. Their souls were hungry for God, and they found their nourishment in prayer. But prayer wasn't in isolation. They prayed together. They devoted themselves to corporate prayer, not just as individuals, whenever it just kind of comes to mind or is convenient, not just as couples, not just as families, but as the church. They gathered to pray. They made petitions, earnest prayers to God by the church day and night. Friends, I've got to be honest here. This is one of my biggest concerns for us. There is a lack of appetite for earnest corporate prayer. It is something we, let's face it, we don't see the need of. Because where there is little appetite, little hunger, little yearning for corporate prayer, there's evidence of the fact that we don't believe we need it. Perhaps we earnestly believe that we don't. We treat corporate prayer as an occasional optional duty rather than a means of strength in life. What does that say about what we look to for nourishment and sustenance? What does it reveal to us about what we find our joy and our hope in? Who are we looking to for our source of strength in life when we treat corporate prayer as an inconvenience? Are we so fattened off of our worldly pursuits and prideful self-sufficiency that we cannot see our need of Jesus? Are we so contented by our petty religious efforts to appease God that we fail to see Christ as the very source and means of our life? Do we have such a faulty view of God that we have little or no desire to commune with him? Do we have such a low view of the church that we take no joy or comfort in communing with her? What does this say about our pursuit of glory? And We wonder why we don't see the word of God increasing multiplying as we would hope to among us. We wonder why we fail to delight in Christ's glory. Or we wonder why we're so overwhelmed by the various oppositions that we find in our lives. 
Could it be that we've simply neglected earnest corporate prayer? Friends, I don't say this to condemn any of us, but to implore us to seek our need of prayer as the church did and to devote ourselves to prayer in the same manner. A good starting place would be Tuesday morning at 6.30. Talking about one hour of corporate prayer. If that's too much for you, maybe you can't, can't do that, think about showing up here at 9.20 on Sunday mornings to pray as a church before our service. If maybe that somehow doesn't work for you, maybe, maybe consider meeting up with John. John, when are you guys praying next for the campus ministry? Okay, what time is that? Okay. All right, so next Sunday, you have an opportunity to pray for our campus and for our campus ministry with a free meal after service where you learn about the strategy for our campus ministry and you pray for our church and for the campus. If maybe that doesn't work for you, maybe there's another time that you'd like to set aside for corporate prayer and would like to see a group started, maybe like a lunch hour or something like that, let us know. I mean, I'd love to get another group together at a different time if, if, say, Tuesday morning doesn't work for you. But let's not neglect this gift. Guys, would you neglect eating? Would you neglect drinking? Would you neglect breathing? And why would you neglect earnest corporate prayer? And so the church devoted themselves to earnest corporate prayer, but they also devoted themselves to proclaiming the glory of Christ with all their lives. James, the martyr, bore witness to the glory of Christ in his death. Peter, in his imprisonment and in his rest. The church, in her gathering corporately and in prayer, in her obedience to God's word, or in how she bore witness to one another of all that God had done. The word of God increased and multiplied because they proclaimed the word and because they were transformed by the word. Because like Saul or Barnabas or John Mark in verse 24, 5, in varying ways the church gave herself to the ministry of the word in service to the mission of the glory of Christ. Friends, this is how we will be sustained despite overwhelming opposition. This is how we will see and delight in and live for the glory of Christ and not compete for our own. This is how we are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another by the power of the Holy Spirit through corporate earnest prayer and through the ministry of the word. Not just by coming and receiving, but also by participating in making disciples of others. You all have a part to play. When we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers, the word of God will increase and multiply in our hearts and in the hearts of those who do not know him. And friends, I need to say this to you as well. There is no place for plateauing in the Christian life. It's actually not possible. You are going up or you are going down. You are not staying at some happy lowest common 
denominator. True devotion will always yield increase and multiplication, maturity and reproduction. It might come hard. Beloved saints might die. Persecution might have to be endured. You might stand toe-to-toe with overwhelming opposition. But one thing that you do not hear the church saying in all of this is that the glory of Christ isn't worth it all. That I'm somehow missing out on a better glory. Instead, you see them praising God. And what a testimony to the glory of Christ. It's a testimony that I pray can be said of us. That despite overwhelming opposition, the glory of Christ is revealed to and among us as we devote ourselves to pray and to proclaim. So with that, let's seek the Lord together. Father God, we... We thank you for telling us your story. Thank you for including us in this unfolding narrative of your work in the midst of your people. How you are revealing your glory despite overwhelming opposition to the church and through the church. And Lord, I pray that these words that we have read would take deep root in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would recognize the glory of Christ as surpassing all else that we would take great joy and delight and peace in knowing that God of God, light of light, has took on flesh and lived a perfect life and died for us and rose again so that in him we might be brought into this glorious union with you, a never-fading, unending, eternal glory that will be ours either in our death or in the return of Jesus, whichever comes first, and I pray that that would be the glory that we seek. Lord, may we not be tempted by opposing views or opposing desires or opposing glories to to give glory to another, to seek glory for ourselves. But instead, may we sing all glory be to Christ. Lord, help us to devote ourselves to the means that you have given us to transform our hearts through earnest corporate prayer and the ministry of the word. Lord, I pray that we see it increase and multiply more and more among us for your glory, for the good of those who do not know you, and for the joy of those who do. 
Lord, we ask in confidence because we know that you will indeed make yourself known. Whether in deliverance or in judgment or in death, you will be glorified. You will not give your glory to another. And so, Lord, make it so in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.